The Mac Observer's Mac Geek Cab, number 326 for April 25th, 2011. Greetings, folks, and welcome to the Mac Observer's Mac Geek Cab, the show where you ask the questions, we provide the answers, we share your tips, and I have one thing to say. We're back. Here in Durham, New Hampshire, I'm Dave Hamilton. <laughs> How poltergeist of you. <laughs> and here in Fairfield, Connecticut, John F. Braun. And? Hey, well, I'm here too. Yeah, Violet Pete. <laughs> we lost our rhythm there for shock a second. Shocks. Yeah, no. I was trying to think of something witty to say, and it just wasn't coming to <laughs> it's me. It's a tiny thing. I couldn't thing. think of a line from the movie Poltergeist, you know? <laughs> If only they could have seen you turn your head around. That's See, right. that would have yeah, been yeah. that would have been good. That's right. Not a visual joke here. That's right. That's right. So I was down in uh, in DC as I said last week, and we kind of took our our uh, our late spring, early spring vacation, whatever it is, spring vacation. So uh, so it was good. But you know, John, it was the first trip that I've taken uh, where I intended to to remain connected, where I did not take a laptop with me. Uh, <sighs> And now you have, I'm going to guess, you have the Wi-Fi and 3G No, I model? don't. I, uh, the, uh, you're talking about the iPad, which, of course, is, yes. is what I did bring. I brought the iPad and, of course, my iPhone. Uh, no, I just have the Wi-Fi version. And the reason is oh, I, could, right. I could not, because I have all of these various and sundry 3G hotspots, I could oh. not imagine a scenario where I would need to uh, turn on 3G in my, in my iPad. Okay. Right. All right. So, so you have Wi-Fi. Uh, I have three Wi-Fi at your disposal with the uh, yeah with the uh, the Wi-Fi right. and all, all the okay okay yeah got it. So uh, oh okay so so you did it for travel. Now you didn't have to do any content creation, right? <laughs> that's right. Because of course the iPad doesn't do any content creation. That's right. That, yeah. That's uh, that's that's what I hear. That's right. No, I, I I don't know that I didn't. I don't think any I did any content creation. But I certainly managed email and and uh, and and did all that stuff. The most interest and it worked out fine uh so there but there were two things that were interesting having the traveling with the ipad number one was we get to our hotel room uh at the four points at uh k and 12th in uh in dc the, the rooms were fine they were what they were uh the the staff there was, was actually horrendous all week so i wouldn't recommend this hotel uh that aside we get there and they say yeah you have free internet uh it's wi-fi in the lobby and wired in the rooms. And I'm thinking, oh, well, that's interesting because we don't normally wired in the rooms means I plug my laptop in. I go into uh, system preferences sharing. I enable Internet sharing over my airport card and I become my own hotspot. Right. And everything's great. Can you let, let me ask you this. Um, yeah. Can you is there a USB to Ethernet adapter that works on the iPad that you're aware of? No, not that I'm aware okay. of. Yeah. Okay, because of course you could do that on the PC uh, right, or, or right, the Mac. Right, right. Okay, I'm I'm just curious. There may be one out there, but I think that that may be something. something yeah. To uh, to someone needs to, to invent it. Yeah, yeah. So it was, uh, yeah, and I don't know that they would work using the camera connection kit. I mean, it's possible, right? Because you've got you can go dock to USB. One of those things might work. I don't. I I, who, I I don't know. It might. It might. But I didn't have one of those. So, uh, but what I did have was my vast array, of course, of 3G hotspot devices. And, you know, really, it, 
this trip, because I, you know, on the last trip I took, I talked about it. I, I tested them all out The you know, the, the Virgin Mobile, Verizon and the clear thing. And then, of course, AT&T via tethering on the uh, iPhone in one various capacity or another. And this time I didn't even bother going for anything other than the clear unit, because uh, I figured if I can get a 4G signal with this clear unit at this address, that's that's what I want. And sure enough, it worked. We got about five megabits down and about one and a half megabits up. And uh, and the only problem I had with the clear unit all week, which, of course, is a known limitation of all these devices, is we had six Wi-Fi devices in our room. We had oh. two iPads, two iPhones and two iPod touches. And of course, all of these Wi-Fi hotspots uh, max out at five. Uh, hmm. So. There were there were a couple times where, you know, we had to just turn off Wi-Fi on one of the iPhones uh, because they would, you know, all just grab their addresses and be there. But so that was that was kind of hurdle. Number one was was providing our own access. But it, the, the clear unit worked so phenomenally well. It really is the thing. If you wind up traveling to a lot of big cities, uh, it, it is the thing I would recommend getting because not only does it work, but it is so much faster than the quote unquote, you know, uh, internet access that they give you in these hotels now uh, that it's almost like being at home. I, you know, I get full oh. speed downloads, full speed uploads. I don't even think about it anymore. Oh, absolutely. Same yeah. experience with the eye of the USB version. Yeah, and right. If 4G is in the city that you're in, which yeah, I would imagine DC. Yeah. Uh, then, then yeah, it's it's good. Now, now I'm, I'm I'm curious. Just a just a quick question. All yeah. these things seem to have a limitation of five. Yeah. Is that something that the vendors are doing, or do you think it's a limit, or is it a limitation of the the network stack or the firmware in these things, or probably the vendors? I can't imagine hmm. it's a limitation of the network stack. I think it's more a uh, battery usage uh, oh. thing. You know, yeah, yeah, I guess bandwidth service. I mean, yeah. After five, you're going to be. Yeah. What are you doing with more than five? I mean, it, you know, okay. our problem wasn't that we had six devices that we needed to use simultaneously. After all, there were only four people, but it was just, you know, that once they grab an address, they kind of hang on to it uh, for a while. So so that was that was number one. Number two was sometime. It was, so we went to my uh, my aunt's funeral at, at Arlington was on on Monday and Wednesday afternoon, I got an email from my uncle who uh, was had been down there and had flown home, uh, and he had sent out a bunch of pictures. And the through where he works, they have their own kind of Dropbox service. And so the email said that this link would expire in forty eight hours. And I thought, well, it's Wednesday afternoon. I'll be home in time to get this. Uh, but this presents an interesting opportunity because I could not download a zip file and unzip it on my uh, iPad. I couldn't figure out how to do that. I tried Goodreader. I tried a couple of other things, but I couldn't do it. And I thought, all right, well, what I need to do then is figure out a way to see these pictures while I'm here. So with my iPad, I connect, I created a VPN tunnel back to my home network here, which, uh, you know, I have all set up. And then using the ISSH app, I took control actually of this computer, the, uh, the iMac in the studio over VNC and then was able to navigate around. I opened up my email here. I downloaded this link. I had it unzip the files on this computer. And then I copied the folder into my Dropbox folder on. Uh, and, and then, of course, it, you know, it uploaded all these pictures and I was able to pull them down and see all the pictures there uh, on my iPad. So it was a very, very geeky solution and, and far over use of technology. 
But uh, because it would have been easy enough for me to either wait until we got home because we were home by about 10 a.m. on Friday morning. Or, you know, I could have just asked my uncle, hey, when I get home, can you send it again? And he would have, of course, happily done that. Yeah, that's yeah. how you roll. But that's how I roll. Right. Exactly. So it was it was a good opportunity. It took me. It didn't take me all that long. I mean, it was maybe a 10 or 15 minute affair. I have to say the ISSH app has a great interface for controlling the mouse and the keyboard over VNC, which is essentially remote desktop. Um, in order to enable it, it takes one extra checkbox on your Mac. You have to go into uh, system preferences and sharing uh, and then click on remote management and then in the uh, computer settings section there, there is a checkbox that says VNC viewers may control screen with password. And if you check that and put the password in, then it will, in addition to allowing Apple's remote desktop uh, clients, it will allow any VNC client, uh, which ISSH is. But it, it really does a good job with the mouse and the keyboard for a device that simply doesn't have a mouse and a keyboard. And it made navigating around even a much larger screen uh, totally usable. And, uh, and obviously I was able to do what I needed to do. So, so it worked. It was cool. It's fun. You know, again, oh, totally over geeked, but that's, you know, that's how I roll. Yeah. Did you, uh, now you flew, I guess. Mm-hmm. Did the, uh, was the Wi-Fi on the, uh, on the flight? No, this was just the U S air shuttle from Boston oh, down okay, and back okay. to DC. So, I mean, you know, it's a what? 56 minute flight. I, I oh. wouldn't, have, I wouldn't have bought Wi-Fi on oh, it okay. anyway. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it, you know, it's US air or what, it, what, it, what are my Twitter followers called it? Uh, useless scareways. Useless air. Useless scare. <laughs> useless scareways. That's right. <laughs> I didn't say that. <laughs> no, I, I, I did. That's right. My words, not. Oh, not US, US airways. Yeah. Oh, you know what I love about them is not only do they give you flight announcements from, but they, they, they continually remind you about their uh, Sky Miles program and their, their credit card, uh-huh. which to me, I think is the job of a flight attendant to do that. I, I'm not satisfied by just, you know, having safety or trip information. I want to learn everything about the airline, including all of their, uh, you know, programs. Those I, poor I, flight attendants are given such scripts now. I feel I bad f- for him. I feel bad for him too. I actually, I, I'm kidding. Of course, I actually think it should be uh, prohibited to for them to say anything does not that does not apply to the functioning or safety of the aircraft. You're a captive audience. They're going to take advantage. That's right. <laughs> and if the passenger sitting next to my wife, who is a flight attendant, uh, called her a stewardess on a power trip <laughs> on our trip this week, so <laughs> and you just kind of go. Oh, no wonder the flight attendants aren't always in the best mood yeah. when they're dealing with people who call them stewardesses on power trips. Nice. They're not, uh, well, I don't even mention the other term because that's going to get. <laughs> what, sandwich girl? Yeah. <laughs> I actually had a pastor call my wife sandwich girl, so that's my nickname <laughs> for her. Very nice. Very nice. All right, let's get to this Ooh, show. Yeah. John, in uh, in one of our more recent shows you uh you as kirk says you expressed woe at the mac app store's lack of notifications of updates kirk says i share this woe so what i did was set up an automator action that launches the app store waits 30 seconds then quits it i save this as an iCal alarm that runs daily at 3 a.m and so there i have it a daily update check if the app store dock icon has a badge it means I have updates to install. So very cool solution using all of the uh, using only uh, 
built-in technology into Mac OS 10 to, to make sure that app store uh, app updates itself. That's, that's good. I like that. Yeah. It's still just, I've noticed inconsistencies in the way some things deal with the doc icons. And that I think I remember at a point where I was not running the app store and it kept showing an update badge. And then when I went into it and I think this was a bug at launch and I think they got rid of it. But as far as I know, any, you may need a background process, but as far as I know, any doc icon can be updated by the app. And, you know, the other one, of course, the fish shake is the, the iCal one, which I have two different machines here right. and they both have different dates on it. And both of them are incorrect. One says 21 and one says 24. And last I checked today is the uh, 25th. So I don't know what's up with that. Yeah. I don't know why iCal can't keep the doc updated because BusyCal can. And so clearly the, the hmm. functionality is available in, uh, in the OS somehow. Hmm. I, yeah. I don't know. All right. Yeah. Not that it's a big deal. I, I no, but it should do it. Is. Yeah, it's, it's all right there. All right. And then uh, Ezra has a uh, an alternative solution to something we discussed in 325 uh, about managing those pesky uh, double instances of apps in your iTunes. Hey, guys, it's Ezra in L.A. I was listening to episode 325 and I heard you talk about the multiple iPhone apps in the mobile applications folder. Uh, I had this problem, and uh, I resolved it by uh, doing something a little different than what you recommended. What I did was I went to iTunes, and I deleted all of the applications from iTunes, but I left the files on the disk. Then I went to the mobile applications folder, and uh, be aware, if you've had multiple copies of iTunes, there may be multiple mobile applications folder in your music folder, so be aware of that. Uh, Go to the mobile applications folder, select... Uh, a chunk of your apps, maybe like by letters of the alphabet starting with A, and then either do Apple down arrow or right click and say open, and it will start to add those apps to iTunes. And if it encounters a duplicate, it will say, would you like to replace with the one you're moving? If you say yes, it will then move that app into the trash, um, leaving only one copy in your folder. And uh, occasionally you may get a message that says, um, would you like to replace the newer one with the older one that you're moving? Obviously, you would probably want to say no to that and then <clears throat> go in and manually remove that. Uh, but it cleared it up for me. It took about an hour. Um, I thought uh, it was faster than your suggestion of trashing everything and redownloading from the iTunes store. I uh, hope this helps. Thanks. That's uh, I actually like that a lot. And, you know, if it does offer to replace a new one with an old one, you could simply let it and then tell it to do updates from the app store and it'll go ahead and pull down the latest versions. So that yet yet another op- option there. So I like that. Thanks, Ezra. That's good. Any uh, any thoughts on that, John, before we before we move on to Brett? Nope. All right. Well, I wasn't ready because I thought you would have some thoughts. So here's Brett. Brett writes, Brett has a couple of things to share. Brett says, the first thing I'm having is this problem with iTunes 10.2 on my Mac Pro running the latest Snow Leopard, where every time I start up, it asks me if I want to allow incoming connections to iTunes through my firewall. I've gone in and checked my firewall settings, and lo and behold, it's already in there with iTunes to allow incoming connections. So I close the firewall pane, close iTunes and restart it. The same thing happens again, and it's still registered to allow incoming connections. This has been going on for a few weeks and is starting to get rather annoying, especially when I want to use home sharing to watch movies on my Apple TV. 
I've Googled it and have come up empty so far. Any ideas? And we'll stop there for now and then we'll share his other. He's got a little tip. Uh, so, John, you I think you've run into this problem. I have an idea and I have solved this. And, and I'm going to tell you what I think happened. Uh, th- there's also a setting in the firewall. So as he pointed out, there's, there's two things in the firewall. Uh, one is a list of applications that should allow incoming connections. There's also a setting, which I believe is checked by default, automatically allow signed software to receive incoming connections. Okay. And what that means, uh, without going into great detail, but there, there's something embedded in the software called a signature. And, if, and suffice to say, only the creator of the legitimate creator of software can put that in there. And if that is a certain value, then that's another way the firewall can say, oh, you're signed. All right. Allow incoming stuff. But as you can see, or as he said, he would keep getting this dialogue. What I suspect happened. So number one, I think uh, he, he did the same thing I did is I typically get my updates from software update. Okay. And I saw this happen with a lot of people and here's the, pro- here's what I think happened. I believe that uh, the signature somehow did not get properly updated in the last software update because this started happening after a software update update, at least for me and a lot of others. And it's not an elegant solution, but it is a solution. And the solution is throw away iTunes and then go to apple.com slash iTunes slash download, download it, reinstall it. Problem goes away. And he wrote back and said, that was it. That's awesome. So it's frustrating though, because again, you'll see it in the list of explicitly in the list of applications. And, and I was getting upset too. I'm like, it's there. I think it may not actually may not have been there because I had that checkbox checked. So I manually added it and it still kept asking. And then I started getting really aggravated. So, huh. um, so this may be, uh, so if you, if you run into any, I think so if you run into any application that keeps asking you this question, uh, t- tossing it and reinstalling it may be the only, only way to solve the problem. Yeah. You know, um, code signing is, is an interesting thing. It, it, it is also just to give, uh, our listeners hear an idea of how it uh, how it works. Uh, it also is the thing that keeps you from running uh, third party apps on self-installed third party apps on your iOS devices. It's that same code signing apps need to be signed in order to run and in order to be signed both on the Mac and on iOS devices. You need to be a registered developer with Apple and then you need to get that signature from them, which, of course, you can get as soon as you're a registered developer. And, and like John said, that way it's trackable. That app and, and its behavior is trackable back to whomever put that signature in. So unless somebody's willing to, you know, uh, do bad things and compromise their ability to be an Apple developer, well, then you're good to go. Right. Is that, did I get that I, right, John? I think uh, I'm not sure if you have to get the cert from Apple because I'm looking at the description of that and it says allow software signed by a valid certificate authority. And the thing is, and and this is a little tangent, but, but I want to mention this because I think it's important for some other problems. Like you may, if you've read the news, you may have seen that there's been a problem with certain certificate authorities and that uh, some of them have been hacked. Right. And then there's this whole trust issue because the whole thing about certificates is you trust that the certificates that are embedded in the operating system are legitimate. Okay. Right. And if somebody compromises that, that certain certificate authority, then you won't know that there's a problem and somebody could, could in theory put up a website 
and you can go with SSL and go to it and it's not going to complain, but, but it, it could be a real connection. But if you look into keychain access, so here's something, yeah. if, if you got some time to kill, let me go back here. ACC. There we go. My quick app launcher, which is spotlight. <laughs> so no, that's the one I use. I, and then you look here and you're going to see, let's see. Okay. Uh, so in the, in the category list, you're going to see certificates. Yeah. I'm sorry. No. In the keychains list, you're going to see system roots. Okay. And I believe, okay. And that is a list of all the root certificates um, that are embedded in the operating system and that are trusted. And, and I think you can import more or Apple updates them yep. uh, on occasion. So I believe if any of the, if an app is signed by any of those, uh, which Apple is probably, yep. And well, Apple is one of them. I'm looking here and there's Apple root CA, Apple root certificate authority. Um, so, so they have one as well as a bunch of other people. Right. So if and, you're curious and, and you just, want to look I at, I did just yeah. read in the developer section at Apple that you, it appears you can use anyone's certificate authority is again, as long as it's one of the trusted ones that Mac OS 10 already knows about. Otherwise it probably won't work. Okay. So that, that's all I got to say about that. Cool. Awesome. Uh, all right, let's go on to Frank here. Frank writes, my 500 gig USB powered external hard drive that stores my iTunes, iPhoto and aperture libraries crashed and burned this weekend. I picked up a new one terabyte Western digital USB powered external hard drive tonight. I was wondering if you could point me to a link or walk me through the process for moving my time machine back up of the failed drive to the new drive without losing any links uh, that I have going on with iMovie projects that are using photos from both Aperture and iPhoto, if possible. The iMovie projects were not on the same external hard drive that failed, but on my internal drive. Also, after I purchased the new one terabyte Western Digital USB powered external hard drive, I'm starting to feel like Arlo Guthrie here with pictures and arrows on the back of each one. Uh, I began to wonder if this is the smartest device for my use. I stream music from this drive uh, a good three to four hours a day to a couple of pairs of audio engine speakers. Uh, although it is convenient that this drive is portable when I do need it about once a week, I would default back to a standard plug-in unit if they are known to last longer in my current environment. All right. So, uh, so question number one, John, about, uh, about the iPhoto library. Let's, uh, let's talk about that. Here we go. Okay. So I'm going to, Walk Frank through this. I'll hold his hand and, you know, don't, don't get weirded out. Yeah. But, but I'm going to I'm going to go through them because I did this because, Dave, the, the weird thing about this is that I have in my setup never really done this and that I have a single hard drive going to a single time machine backup. Right. So first I wondered, I scratched my head and wondered, gee, can you back up multiple drives on a single time machine? And of course, the answer is Yes. But what I had to do is when I was set, so I basically created a small environment to, to duplicate uh, his situation, at least for iPhoto. Uh, and the other thing you got to be careful of is that I think by default, or at least I found this in my case, is that by default, Time Machine will exclude any external drives from backup. And then okay. I put it in my exclude right. list. So That's I had right. to unexclude it because I think what I did is I plugged in the drive, you know, with a, uh, with a library on it, right. ran the backup and I didn't see it show up in the backup. And I'm like, huh? And then I looked and it was in the exclusion list. Okay. So anyways, here's the steps that I would take. So format your new external hard drive. And this is important, at least for, uh, for the uh, iPhoto. Okay. Give it the same name yep. as the hard drive that died. And I found that's important. Right. Then make sure you're in the finder. 
make sure you're not in another application because that happened to me as well. I think it was a mail and I went in Time Machine and it launched the mail version of Time Machine, right. which I didn't want. Then you want to, then, then you'll see in the upper left, you will see the list of drives and you want to click on the Time Machine drive in the devices section. Then you want to double click on backups.backupdb folder. Then you're going to dig down and you're going to see a folder with the name of the machine. And then uh, the best place uh, I think to go is in the latest folder. Okay. And then you're going to see folders for each of the drives. And this is where when I added the new drive, I saw a folder that had the name of that drive. Got it. Uh, that, that I just created. I think I called it, you know, iPhoto library or something like that. Sure. And after it backed up. Then click on that, and then you're going to see all the items that are backed up. And then basically what you want to do is select all the ones that you want to restore. You can select just some, or you can select the whole thing. And then uh, you're, you're going to see the little uh, tool menu, I think it is, the little gear. It, it, when you're in the time machine interface, you're talking right, about. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. Right. So once everything's highlighted, then you go to that little gear, and then you're going to see an item restore, and it's going to have the number of items that you have highlighted from the tool menu yep. and then select, uh, and then you're going to get a destination and select your newly formatted hard drive as the destination. Uh, yeah. And in my case, it worked great in that I started up iPhone. So first I set up iPhoto. So when you, when you start up iPhoto, I believe it was option that would let you select another, uh, a library on an external drive or a different library, uh, whether it's on an external drive or just another one. Um, and then it's going to remember that until it can't find it again. So in this case, basically, I started it up and everything worked. It, it didn't get confused about this. But as far as I can tell, and th this is kind of weird, and I think you have something to say about it, it is definitely, because I was wondering about this, it's definitely keyed to the name of the drive. And that I think I even changed the name of the drive. And then it said, oh, can't find it. Sorry. Yeah. Where, 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 where's the library you just uh, I, I just saw last time? So. Yeah, that's right. And and iTunes is the same way. It's keyed to the name of the drive. Uh, and 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 to be frank, that's kind of well, actually, I won't be frank because Frank was the one that had the problem. But uh, but I I find that handy because I now have standardized and my iTunes music is all stored on a drive that's called music. And that way, if I ever need to change its location again, I just change it and I name that drive music and I don't have to worry about any, you know, lost pointers or any of that crazy stuff that, uh, that can go on with iTunes where that is a problem for me is that it's simply inconsistent with the way Apple does things. Sometimes they point to drive names as they do in these cases. Sometimes the drive name doesn't matter. It's pointing to the, the, you know, hidden ID of the drive that the system sees and so you could change the name of the drive and it doesn't matter. It still points where you, you know, where you expected it to point. So it's just a little bit inconsistent from a, from a troubleshooting standpoint, but uh, for a general use standpoint, it's actually kind of handy that in this case it, it tracks by the drive name and doesn't care if the physical disc has changed. Yeah. I mean, for this, it makes sense because right. in a situation like this, He's up and running with uh, right after he restored. Otherwise, then yeah, it's going to look at the UUID and say, "Well, well that's that's a different drive." Uh, right. So, right. yeah, but I agree with you. It, it depends on the application, I think. And in this case, I, I think it's the right way to do it. It, it is, unless you know, the, the, my one risk running um, iTunes pointing to a drive named Music is if I ever, let's say, I go to Pete's house and he's got a volume named Music on his network. Uh -oh. 
Right. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> right. Now iTunes doesn't realize, oh, that's not the music you thought it was, you know. Um, so it, it might start doing some funky things. I, you know, I don't know, but it, it could create a problem. Whereas if it was pointing to the unique ID of the, of the volume, then there's, you know, no way that that, that that's going to get confused. All right. So his second question was that he, he bought a, uh, a USB powered, a bus powered external hard drive. Is this a bad idea considering that he wants to run it for three to four hours a day? My feeling on that, John, and I, I have no idea what yours is. I'm curious to hear it. My feeling is, you know, drives are these days, drives are kind of built to die anyway. So I don't think it's going to matter for you in, in this instance. Um, certainly a, a, a full size, you know, uh, wall powered drive, if you will, is probably going to be built to last uh, a little longer before it's built to fail. But I don't, I don't know. It's, I, I don't think it, I don't think it matters. I think speed would be your big difference because those smaller drives tend to be in a general sense, tend to be a whole lot slower than, uh, than their larger counterparts. But, but otherwise I, I don't, I, in his case, I don't think it matters, especially given that you're backing up, which you should be doing anyway. Um, my only thought on this now, I believe the machine he's talking about here, if I see it in, in his letter, I think he has a MacBook Pro. Uh, I don't know that he's, yeah, he does. It's a 2008 MacBook Pro. Yeah. I mean, my only concern is that is, you know, if you're bus powering, then you're going to be sucking down some battery doing this. So. Sure. Yeah. But if he's at his desk and plugged in, he's fine. Yeah, and then, when then you're cool. When he's traveling, he's better off anyway, because he doesn't need power. Yeah, I mean, if, if it's, uh, you know, USB is, you know, not the quickest interface, so that would be my only concern. Yeah, yeah, yep. um, But it sounds like it's, uh, you know, it's it's meeting all his uh, needs. Uh, you know, he says he's streaming and stuff like that. Yeah. So, uh, uh, and I think, you know, Western Digital is as is, is good as anybody. Yeah, it's become so homogenized these days. I don't, I don't know. I'm sure all the drive manufacturers would, would scream and yell at us saying, no, no, mine's different because, well, yeah, yours fails just like everybody else's. Uh, uh, I yeah, Do you I feel mean, any differently? Am I, I mean, I'm, I'm kind of just, you know, I, 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 I'm, I'm specifically not basing that on empirical evidence and, and just saying experientially, drives die. Doesn't matter who made them. And, and no matter, even if somebody says this is, this drive is three times as good as, you know, that brand drive, it doesn't matter. You have to back up. Otherwise you have to assume that that data is in temporary storage that may go away any point in time. Um, yeah, I gotta say, honestly, I, I don't think, I mean, there's different performance, certainly. So, you know, there's the, uh, oh. you know, the RPMs, the cache, yeah, the I'm size, the reliability. Oh, reliability. Uh, they all stink. Right. Uh, No, I mean, they all, uh, I mean, right now, so I have a Hitachi on my MacBook. I have a Hitachi, uh, a Hitachi laptop drive, two and a half inch drive in my, uh, in my MacBook. Right. I have in the external case connected to my mini, uh, three and a half inch. What, one of the first, I think it was the first one terabyte drive Hitachi made. And that was in the G five. Now it's in an external case. They're lasting fine. And then I'm looking here and the luck of the draw is that my mini here has a Toshiba drive. But yeah, uh, yeah I mean, I've, I've seen some people, you know, ah, you know, WD is a pile of garbage. And stuff. But but I I haven't seen uh, like you, I think I, I haven't seen any evidence that indicates that any one 
you know, drive is uh, superior to any other. You can certainly, I mean, there are industrial level drives. I mean, if you're yeah. willing to pay extra money, you can get drives, you know, whether they be mil spec or stuff like that, that, uh, that you know, will have longer mean time between failure. I think that's more in the, the enterprise space. But, but you still you know, you're, need you're to assume, you still need to assume that it's going to fail oh, all sure. the time. All drives will fail eventually. That's right. SSD or, or mechanical, whatever. Yep. Yeah, that's right. That's yeah, right. Have a good plan. And well, you, you, uh, actually, yeah, talked about I, that. I, I did. I, you know, I did my session, uh, down at, uh, at Princeton Mac users group a couple of weeks ago and, and it was a blast. You know, it's, it's fun doing something that I haven't done before because even though I back up all the time, I, I learned a lot doing it and I, I want to start incorporating some of that. I didn't want to do that in this show because we had such a backlog of questions and we hadn't been here for two weeks, but, uh, but we'll start trickling that in. Uh, maybe we won't dedicate a whole show to it, but we'll, you know, maybe talk about cloud storage options on, on one show and, and, uh, and, you know, local backups on another and, and you know, chop it up a little bit and have some fun with it. Oh yeah. yeah. Cause there's been a little, little talk about, um, some, uh, there, there were some problems in the cloud as of late. Yes, that's right. I don't know if you want to discuss it. No, we, we should solve problems, but, uh, yeah. yeah, but between Amazon and, uh, and Dropbox, there have been some chatter about, uh, some, some of the issues you may have with cloud services. So that's right. That's right. All right. Uh, you know, since I mentioned it or since Frank, uh, fed it to us to mention in the, in his comments in the last question, uh, now is a perfect time for us to talk about our f- first sponsor for this show, which is audio engine. And their speakers at AudioEngineUSA.com. And given how crowded Washington, D.C. was last week versus how undercrowded it was a year ago the same week, I'm going to have to assume that the economy has fully recovered uh, and that people are traveling. And with that, I've chosen to highlight Audio Engine's flagship offering, their premier offering, their premium offering, uh, their A5 desktop speakers. Now, these are they call them bookshelf speakers. And, and I want to clarify that. That's right. The, these are these are larger than you would normally put on a desktop, though. I have them on this very desktop and they are very comfortable here. And I think you have the same speakers on your desktop, John. These speakers, uh, it it they they each each include are two separate enclosures, one for left, one for right. Each one has a tweeter and a woofer in it. The uh, the speakers themselves are 10 inches high. And uh, and about seven inches deep and uh, and seven inches wide. Good size speakers. They are self-powered. And what that means is that one speaker has an amplifier in it that will drive uh, both uh, both sides of the equation. These things are engineered to make all your music, including MP3s, but not just MP3s, sound fantastic. And and they work. Uh, the they, they have nice, rich, low end you can turn these things up and they don't distort. They can fill a room. They can fill a house with sound. The highs are crystal clear. Very, very cool stuff. Uh, really, really great sound. Uh, they're $349 a pair. Uh, and you do get uh, uh, free shipping. Uh, you can get them in black or white. For an extra 100 bucks. you can actually get them in bamboo. So they're 449 for the bamboo. They have, uh, in addition to the two speakers in each uh, enclosure, you have a base port there that really helps focus that low end. Uh, they've also got all sorts of different inputs. So you can input from your computer with a little mini eight jack or from your iPod. Uh, you can input from a, uh, say a home stereo component with RCA 
uh, inputs, the little, uh, the, well, they're red and they're white cables usually is how, uh, is how uh, you usually might recognize RCA jacks. It has an AC outlet on the back because these hang, these things are self-powered. You have to plug them into the wall, but you can hang a device off the back. You can charge your iPod with it. You could hang an airport express off the back and stream music straight to these things with just one plug into the wall. And that's that again, they're three forty nine a pair. You get a free third or you get a 30 day audition, which is free in that they'll, uh, they won't charge you anything to send them back. Uh, if you don't like them. So you really have no reason not to try these things out. Um, John and I, we've both had these for about five years. They last and, uh, and they still sound as great today as they did the day I got them. So mm-hmm. uh, like my favorite part, Dave is yep. seeing the large speaker. Uh, when, when you get the volume up is yeah. you'll see it, you'll see it moving, mm-hmm. <laughs> which I, I yeah, they, think is kind of cool. They push some air for sure. For sure. So it's audio And these are the audio engine a fives, uh, at audio engine All right, let's move on to David. Hey guys. Uh, my question is in regards to an iPad, my parents laptop, which they don't know laptop that I gave them. Uh, just solely for syncing the iPad and setting it up, uh, died. And there's no back. So my question is, and I've done the uh, 4.2, 4.3 upgrade. So I hook up the iPad to my laptop or a new laptop or any laptop for that matter, and it won't let me sync from the iPad to the laptop. Now, they, have, they store all their photos uh, on the iPad, et cetera, and I don't want to lose all that. Um, so I was wondering if there's a way around to get the, the reverse sync, if you will, to go from an iPad to a laptop so that I could then uh, sync with iTunes and get the 4.3 update and not lose all their photos in the process of doing a brand new sync. Um, so I figured there's a way. If you bought a new computer, how would you transfer the iPad over from an old one to a new one? Uh, you can reach me. So All right. So we'll cut you off there, David. Uh, yeah. So this is interesting, uh, John. This um, it, it he's right that if you plug the iPad or any iOS device into a Mac with which that is not the one that it normally syncs with, uh, it will come up and say, "Hey, I don't sync with this computer. Do you want me to? You know, you want to wipe this thing out and start from scratch?" Which of course he doesn't want to do. However, if you hit cancel at that point and you're inside iTunes, uh you'll still see the iOS device listed there. It just won't, uh, it'll just be dormant, but it'll still be listed on the left uh, underneath devices inside iTunes. So the first thing you want to do is right click on it and choose transfer purchases. Now this will transfer in all of the apps and I believe all the music that you've purchased that's on that device. Uh, what you may need to do first is go in iTunes to the store menu and choose authorize computer uh, so that the computer is authorized to house and receive this, uh, this, this, this data. But, uh, but otherwise it will happily transfer that stuff back. So that's, that's step one. Now photos uh, probably even a little easier because you can go into iPhoto and sync uh, treat it just like a camera and just pull the stuff in out of your, uh, out of your camera roll. Uh, I don't know, John, what, what's the name? Do you know off the top of your head, the name of the app that'll pull all the photos yes, in? I okay. do. All right, good. So go. Oh, <laughs> well, I have it up here. So image capture. Will that pull 
photos. Image capture has a, uh, well, not, uh, well, photos that have been taken. Right. So yeah, iPhoto will do that too. Now what I'm, th- there's, there's all the pictures that are in the photo library. Uh, if you sync them back out to the, to the iOS device, then all these photos are just in the photo library there and won't import uh, from well, yeah, my understanding that's a one. Uh, yeah, from what I've seen, that's a one-way operation. Yeah, you're, you're, but there's if you're syncing photo, if you're syncing photos, yeah, as far as I know, or at least experimenting with my iPhone, yeah, that's a one-way operation. It's only to push photos from the computer to the device. I don't believe there's a reverse path. If they're taken with the device, uh, in that the device has a camera, then image capture will pull those in. So, but it sounds like he's talking okay. about synchronized photos. In which right. case, I, I do not believe there is a, a reverse path that, that I know of, or I, I haven't but, found one. But there is. Uh, so oh, the, the third-party eCam network, that was the one I was thinking of. They have, ah. an, they have an app called Phone View that is built to do all of this, pulling oh, all of that kind of metadata and even just data, pictures, movies, all that stuff. You can suck it back over to your computer. So that's uh, that's that stuff. The, the one thing that I don't think... Uh, phone of you will do is it doesn't pull all of your songs back over and that requires uh there but there are other apps that do it and the one that i like uh is called sanuti which is s-e-n-u-t-i which is itunes Uh backwards uh and it does exactly that It, it it'll pull your playlists and all that stuff and and repopulate an itunes library with that so between uh apple's built in apps and and then uh and then uh, phone view and Sanuti, you should be able to rebuild all of the data or, or capture all of the data that's on that device. And then of course you do have to wipe it out and, and, and kind of re put everything out there with the new computer. And I just used phone view and pulled music off my oh, iPhone. It, it'll pull it, music too. It, it will pull music. <laughs> There's a music folder under media. And will it pull it or just play it? I just put it on my desktop. And okay. Hit play and that answers that. Hit a play. Work. Yeah. Okay, cool. Awesome. Mm-hmm. Thanks, Pete. Wow. Yeah. Look at this real time feedback. This is, uh, this is awesome. So there you go. You don't even necessarily need Sanuti. You just, uh, you just need phone view, which is, there's a demo. It's 20 bucks. So, but you can try the demo. It's good. Cool stuff. I use it all the time with the iPad in particular. Yep. It's a great way of syncing without the clatchy iTunes way of uh, getting PDFs on and off the, uh, off the machine and you can it says here you can back up all your your sms messages from your from your iphone and and uh archive your phone voicemail and see and now i just stuff. learned something here we go yep see there that? it is yeah call it's got a call log all my notes there you go cool stuff found folks phone view i think we've talked about it before that's that's the only reason i knew of it was that we've mentioned it here on the show before but but that would be the uh that would be the one so cool Anything else on that, John, before we no, I head over to try Martin. that. All right. Yeah. Uh, so Martin writes, I, uh, I, I have a problem when playing uh, Call of Duty Black Ops on my PlayStation 3, the NAT, N-A-T type changes randomly from strict to open to moderate, which affects gameplay and voice. Uh, I have an airport extreme as my base station and I have a couple of devices wired to it, including my PlayStation three. After a bit of searching, I found that port forwarding should sort my life out because, but I'm afraid that I'm new to the Mac and even newer to port forwarding. 
Am I even barking up the right tree or am I destined to suffer inconsistent gnat types? All right. Uh, John, I know you have the uh, the answer here. Can, can I an answer? Can, an answer. Can I explain what gnat is or do you want to do that? No, go ahead. Uh, okay. Yeah, port forward. Uh, I, I think it's 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 worth talking about Nat and port forwarding. Yeah. Uh, first, but he is barking up the right tree. I, I, I he's close to bark. He, yeah, he's near the right tree. I think. Okay. <laughs> All right. So, so the idea is you have your network in your house, and in most cases, certainly not all, but in the lion's share of all home networks where we have cable modems or DSL, some sort of high speed dedicated connection to our homes. Our internet providers give us the one IP address to use on the internet. And that's all we get. So if we want more than one device, we have to use some other method of sharing that one IP address amongst the whole uh, network. The way this is done is your router, in, in his case, is Airport Extreme, uh, grabs that one IP address and then uses some magic that's called NAT, N-A-T, Network Address Translation, to effectively share that one IP address by creating a dummy network in your house. And then it does uses this NAT as kind of the magic that translates this data back in and out. So when data comes in for any of your computers, it all comes to that one IP address. They all appear to be the same IP address out on the Internet. And it's up to your router to decide when data comes in, what do I do with this? Do I send it to one of these computers? And if so, which one? Or do I simply ignore it and let it go uh, as though it never made it anywhere? So that's that's what Nat does. And for the purposes of his game, he wants to connect, essentially connect directly with the other players that uh, that he's playing with. In order to uh, to to have this you know distributed gameplay experience, and so NAT is some sort of network translation needs to be used uh, to allow the other players on the outside of his network, i.e., out on the internet, to be able to talk directly to his PlayStation and for his router to know that these packets are supposed to go to his PlayStation. So that that's sort of the the background of what's going on here. So yes, NAT is is the right technology to be looking at here, Martin. So John, go ahead, but, take it. But I yeah. want to be clear is that there's another issue port forwarding. So, so I'm going to right. go into this and, and please correct me, but I think okay. that the, the issue is that for the most part, your device, whether it be a computer or a PlayStation or something, normally they can initiate connection to the outside world on a particular port going to a certain IP address. And then you have a channel where you can communicate in both directions. Right. The so thing is some applications let, let, for let whatever me, reason. I, you glo you, I think it's important because I know where All you're right, going go. with your answer. Go. I, go. Uh, so when let's say you uh, your computer requests a page from MacObserver.com, Right. So what you do is, you know, your your computer tells your router I want to go get a page, this page from MacObserver.com. And so the router then makes the request on your behalf, essentially, uh, using that external IP address. But it knows, it says, okay, this request, when you send a request to a, an, a computer out on the internet, you say, uh, you connect to the, the, the computer on whatever port you're supposed to, and web services happen on port 80 typically. But you also say, send along and say, when you reply back to me, reply back on port, 
and then you give it a port. Then for these purposes, we'll say, you know, three, four, five, six, seven, right? So your router knows that when it gets data back on port three, four, five, six, seven from MacObserver.com, it knows, aha, that's for the computer that requested it. And so that's how it knows that this incoming data isn't just some random data. It knows exactly what computer it's for. When you're playing a game with your PlayStation, though, you haven't necessarily connected to this other person. They need to be able to connect back to you on a specific port. And your router needs to know any data that comes in on this goes to that PlayStation no matter what. So keep going, John. Good. And normally, if a request comes out of the blue from somewhere outside of your network without being initiated, then your router is going to reject it. It's going to be like, what? Yeah, which is, you know, what what hack, which is what, you know, so-called hackers love doing, you know, right. poking, trying to poke into networks. So one way to get around this is, uh, and this is what he's mentioning, is port forwarding. And what you can do is manually configure your router to allow traffic on to come into your network on certain ports and go to a particular device. Right. And I, and I looked up this game and this game does have now, now here's some good news, bad news, good news. Good news is there is a site and I think it's port forward. Is it .org or .net? I think it's portforward.com or .com. And this is a site that depending on what router you have and what application you have, it'll tell you how to do it. Now, here's the kind of bad news. When I looked up Airport Extreme and COD Black Ops. Yeah. The thing is, COD Black Ops requires so many ports to be open and available that they claim in their documentation that it's not possible with the Airport Extreme because it only uh, allows a certain number of ports to be defined manually. Uh, So I'm like, oh, that's terrible. So, but then here's the good news. Now, I don't know about this because I don't have a PlayStation, so I'm just kind of guessing here. Now, here's the good news, Dave, is that there are some protocols because doing this manually is just a pain in the neck. Right. You know, and it's prone to error if you get it wrong. Fortunately, there are some protocols where a device will do this for you. And there, there's two major protocols. So one is called universal plug and play. Or That's the good news. U- now, UPNP, here's the bad news. Right. UPNP. Right. That's the good news. The bad news is the airport extreme doesn't support that. The good news. See, we're, we're going back and forth here. Uh, hope, hopefully we're not putting you on a roller coaster here with all this good and bad news. The thing is, Apple supports a less common but probably better protocol to do this called NAT P M port mapping protocol. And what both of these do is allow a device like a PlayStation or a computer to say, Hey router, you know what? Can you open up these, uh, these ports, uh, you know, and let the traffic in. And it's a much better way to do it because the device does it for you and it sets it up. And when it's not needed anymore, I assume it gets rid of it. Now, based on what I saw, I got mixed information. So I don't know. I don't, I don't know PlayStation or the game to test this, but from what I could see, the PS3 explicitly supports UPnP, but it also, from what I saw, the claim is that it'll back up. If, it, if that doesn't work, then it'll try NatPMP. So my advice was try it. Uh, uh, set that setting. So what you have to do is you have to go into the airport, and there's a tab. I think you, uh, you run the airport utility, click on manual, click on internet, then click on NAT, and there will be an enable NAT port mapping protocol checkbox, which I believe is not checked by default. So check that box and run the game and see if it, if it works right. Uh, lacking that, uh, you know, get 
a, a Linksys, an inexpensive Linksys or something, and uh, you know, just make sure that it says it supports UPnP or do some Google Foo, and you should be able to find an inexpensive router that supports it, and then hang your airport off of that and put it in bridge mode. What's my advice? <laughs> well, there, I have one. Everything you said is right. I have one thing to add, though. Mm-hmm. If you go into airport utility uh, and you go into Internet and then NAT, uh, you'll see right above where it says configure port mappings. There is and right above where it says enable NAT port mapping protocol. Mm-hmm. There is a checkbox that says enable default host at. And what this is, this What's is similar. Do? This what is the, similar. What does it do? That's right. It's similar to what they call DMZ on uh, every other router on the planet. Of course, Apple just has their own terminology. And what DMZ stands for is demilitarized zone. So what you can say is put in one host there and say, look, take all of the unsolicited requests that you don't know what to do with and shovel them all off to my PlayStation 3. And and so you can do that. And then for this, it would work. Right. Because it's you know, your problem is you don't the list isn't long enough to populate it with all of the uh, all of the various port forwards that need to happen. But with this, you can say essentially forward every port other than those that, you know, go to other computers uh, forward every other request off to my PlayStation three. And and that in theory could work. Uh, It does create a potential. You just need to be aware that. If someone's trying to hack into your network and coming in on random ports, they're going to be going straight to your PlayStation 3, essentially, or they're going to be handed to your PlayStation 3. Oh. Now, whether or not that's a problem so that's for what you. The, oh, yeah. I love how Apple just meant. Yeah, I, I had no idea what that meant, so I didn't right. even mention it. Okay, so yeah. it, it puts the, the PS3 kind of outside your network. Mm. Well, in... in or in a different, essentially. less protected... Less protected. Yes. Part of the network. That's right. It just instead of ignoring all those unsolicited requests, it just sends them all to the PlayStation three to deal with them as it cares to. Oh, yeah. Okay. look on the help screen here. Default host is a computer on your network that is exposed to the Internet and receives all inbound traffic. Yep. No, I I should have clicked on help to figure out. They should call it DMZ because it's what everybody else calls it. And and that's what I saw in the uh, yeah in some of the uh, forms I saw. They they suggested that as well. Okay, so between those two, one or the other. Uh has to solve the uh, should solve this problem <laughs> should that's right yeah i'd, I'd opt for yeah I'd, i i would prefer the the, the nat port mapping just just because it, yeah. it does offer you a, a little better security it does so then and again it, i mean what are you yeah. going to lose if somebody hacks into your place that well i don't know you may have i don't know i don't know if it starts credit cards or you know whatever you got on that thing so i think you'd have trouble hacking into it anyway although i haven't tried i don't have a playstation 3 but my guess is it's closed box system so you're probably pretty safe it would be more of a risk if you were to point that to one of your macs uh, you know again just because yeah. you're you know it's you know the playstation's just not a target rich environment right there's nothing on there for the most part that's right right so i hope yeah <laughs> that's right all right let's uh let's go to a question that's probably going to require a much shorter answer hey dave john and pete this is lewis calling from Marin county california I was calling for a little clarification on your recent discussion regarding sharing iOS apps among multiple computers. Uh, And specifically, I'm curious about whether the same five-computer authorization limit applies to apps as it does to purchase music and video. I've got twin daughters about to go off to college, and I'm hoping to load them up with new computers and iPhones, and I don't want them to have to repurchase all the, the apps that I've purchased. 
and I still like them to be able to sync and back up to their computers and not have to come back home uh, anytime they need to sync or if they need to restore their phones. Uh, Apple doesn't make it real easy to track which machines are authorized with which accounts, and I'd really rather not have to deal with that mess. I've already got five machines, this is going to make seven, so I'd have to really juggle which, which five machines I want to authorize with which accounts, and that can get really confusing. Any help you can shed on the matter would be greatly appreciated. You can cut me off now. And we shall cut you off. All right, so, well, the good news is it is a shorter answer than the one for the last question. The bad news is it's not the answer you want. Uh, it, it is, you are limited to five computers. You, as far as I know, are allowed an unlimited number of iOS devices syncing to those five computers. But, uh, but yet the five computers is, is the limit. Um, so you, it's not easy, uh, but here's the thing. You don't have to have your computer authorized in order to have the device authorized because the device you can authorize from the computer or you just type in your username and password into the app store app and boom, you're good to go. Right. So you, you know, your daughters could have their own uh, iTunes store accounts that their computers attached to, but if they want to download an app that you have uh, purchased with, you know, one of these other, with your other account, uh, just tell them to go into the app store, sign out of the, uh, go into the app store on their iPhone, sign out from the app store, which I think you can do if you click on categories and go to the bottom, there, there should be a little sign out link. And, uh, and then go to, to download whatever this app is. It'll ask them not just for their password, but also for their username type in both and and then it'll say, oh, hey, you've already purchased this because it, they're typing in your username and password and you've already purchased it. And then it'll download their, to their device. No problem. So and, and updates can be done on the on the phone the same way. You just tell it to do updates and it'll say it'll it'll come up and ask you for the account uh, that that app is registered to. So you should be fine doing it that way. It's a little bit of a kludge, but it keeps you from uh, having to rebuy the apps. And also gets you around this, you know, five computer limit so that it's not the most elegant solution, but it, it would work for you. And, you know, that's that's what solutions are meant to do. Right. Right, John. Uh, yeah. Can, can I issue my condolences to his wallet? Sending twins off the couch. <sighs> I know. Well, yeah. it doesn't have to break the bank. <laughs> says the guy with no with kids. No kids. That's right. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> well, yeah, no, actually, that's when, when, well, you know what? That's that's no problem because my daughter's going to be going to college in in what seven or eight years. So I, I, I she, you're going to take care of her. I'll take care of my son, John. Right, and we're good to go. Is that right? Well, no. I'm just saying when no, the silence. Well, I no, no. There's no silence here. No, I have a sister. <laughs> yeah, and my parents sent us to uh, to do our undergrad and. Uh, we didn't go to a fancy, uh, fancy school. I went to a state school. Yeah. State schools are not as cheap as they used to be. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I went to a state state school for uh, my two year and then went to a, a you know, private school for yep. four year. But then uh, both my sister and I went to the same school and believe it or not, they gave a, uh, at least for two years and, uh, they gave a, uh, uh, a family, family discount. discount. Quanti- oh, they gave a, they gave a family discount. Yeah, that's cool. They did. 
That's cool. So, um, but yeah, I know. So like UConn and all that. Yeah. I, I just think, uh, you know, don't dismiss a state, uh, a state school. Oh no, I, I, I don't. I just know that they are way more expensive than they used to be. When, when, when you and I were going to college and we weren't, you're a little older than me, but not that much. Uh, but the state schools are, are percentage wise, not nearly as discounted as they used to be. Uh, okay. Cause and, I remember when I, when and, I went to Norwalk tech. Yeah. My books cost more than the tuition. Yeah, that's see, that's just not how it <laughs> Those works. days are long gone. Yeah, yeah. Okay. that was my and, case. And here's, okay. here's the other thing I'm hearing. Uh, we got to get to our cool stuff found, but uh, apparently, a lot of state schools are um, not taking as many in-state residents as they used to, and in in some cases, prioritizing out-of-state residents because they get more money. What they're trying to make money. Yeah. What, that, what are they, a business or a school? Well, oh, yes. <laughs> yes, that's right. Yeah. So anyway. let me go back to this real quick. You, you were talking about the, uh, the iTunes thing. It's, yes, thanks for getting us back on track. Yeah, sorry. Uh, if, what you do is you go to uh, the App Store and you go to Featured and scroll down to the very bottom and you'll see the, the account name. And if you tap on your account name, it gives you the option to view the account, sign out or, or cancel. So you can sign out, sign in to, to another account. Okay, I think it's at the bottom of categories, too, isn't it? It may may be. I didn't. uh... Yeah, it is. It's at the bottom of categories and at the bottom of feature. Yeah, Yeah, just not at the bottom of like search. It wasn't at the bottom of updates or search. Right, right, right. Cool. All right. A couple of cool stuff found. In fact, we've got one that's uh, that comes with a question. So uh, so we're not quite done with our questions for the day. Kurt writes. I recently came across an interesting internet browser application. As you know, the Google Chrome browser has a reputation for being secure from hacking due to its use of sandboxing technology that isolates the browser from other system resources. However, I prefer to use Firefox because of the wide variety of add-ons and extensions for security and privacy. But unfortunately, Firefox lacks this sandboxing technology. Now, someone has created the best of both worlds. An application called Iron Fox is a clever bit of programming that launches the Firefox browser within a sandbox. I like this approach because it still allows me to use all of my usual add-ons, but should be more secure than the standard Firefox. Based on the testing that I've done, it does truly sandbox the app and limit which files and directories can be accessed. You have to keep this in mind, in fact, or else you'll find that you can't get to a photo directory that you might wish to upload from. For example, Iron Fox is at Romab.com, and we will, of course, put a link in the show notes. Uh, But I did say that Kurt had a question. So Kurt's question is... Back when iOS 4.0 came out for the iPod Touch, there were many reports that it reduced battery runtime, so I held off from updating my iPod Touch 3G. Now that iOS 4.x has been out for a while, I'm guessing that the firmware and applications have matured to the point where this is less likely, likely less of an issue. I'm tempted to upgrade to the latest and greatest, but I'd like to preserve a path back to the faithful version 3.1.3 that I'm running now. What steps can I take so that I can try out 4.3 yet still revert back to 313 if I don't like the latest? So this gets a little convoluted, but uh, when you do an update, iTunes actually, before it applies the update to your iOS device, iTunes phones back to Apple over the Internet and checks to make sure, A, that your device is okay to be updated, which means that, you know, it wasn't registered stolen or something otherwise. But it also checks to make sure that the version of the OS that you're putting on there is acceptable for that device. 
Now, here's the thing. Acceptable is Apple's definition of acceptable. And typically, Apple won't allow older versions of the OS to be installed. So in order to get the OS to uh, in an older OS to install, you actually have to uh, you have to trick iTunes into checking with something other than Apple. Uh, there's an application, but, but the good news is that the jailbreak community has good reason to want to roll back to older versions or install older versions of iOS. So there's been a utility, a slew of utilities, in fact, created to help out with this. What you do is you run an app called Tiny Umbrella. Uh, and there's again, there's others, but Tiny Umbrella is going to be the one that uh, that probably is the simplest to use. Now, you have to run this before you upgrade because it has to get a file out of your iPhone that then will confirm back with your same with iTunes saying, yes, this device is authorized to run this old firmware. So you run Tiny Umbrella before you do anything and have it save what's called the SHSH blob. Uh, and then you save that out and then it does a little bit of trickery behind the scenes uh, so that when iTunes goes to check for an update, it actually goes and and checks either the uh, jailbreak store, which is called Cydia, C-Y-D-I-A, or you can have it check Tiny Umbrella itself on your local Mac. And you'll want to do the latter uh, because you probably haven't jailbroken your device. Once you do that, then uh, then you should be able to install the old firmware but you've got to save the firmware file too. Those are stored in your home folder in library, iTunes, and then iPhone software updates. If it's not there, you might have to search the internet to find that firmware file because I don't think Apple's going to provide it for you. But uh, but but there are a lot of people out there that that have them. So so that that's kind of the that's the nutshell. It's a um, it's a it's a little bit of a convoluted thing because you're doing something that, you know, Apple prefers people not to roll back to the old firmwares because they want everybody on the latest so that application developers can develop for the latest and and so that they can support the latest and all of that good stuff. Um, there's also the issue of baseband changes as you roll forward with newer updates. There are some things that happen on the iPhone. And once you go too far forward, you can't roll all the way back. And I don't know enough as to whether or not 313 will will even work if going back from 4.3.2 which is what we have now but uh, but hopefully you'll do all this and then be okay with 432 and you won't even want to roll back but that's that's a nutshell of uh, of doing it tiny umbrella is the uh, is the software we'll put a put a link in the show notes any hmm. any any thoughts on that john i'm going with apple man i'm not messing with that stuff <laughs> Well, there you go. If they say update, I update. Okay, that's good. I think that's they good. pushed one, uh, I think it was a carrier update that yeah. kind of redid the, uh, may have done, redid some of the uh, radio firmware, or the, uh, you know, the towers that, or the, the, right. I'm not sure what it did, but you know, Hey, I saw right. the update and so far everything's working uh, swimmingly. Good. Um, the battery life. I don't know. Sometimes if I do heavy usage, I may get a day out of a charge if yeah. I use it a lot throughout the day. Yeah. So, so you're uh, doing good. But if, I, but if I but if He's I let new. it sit, but if I let it sit on standby, it, it'll I get the advertised time. It'll sit there. Sometimes it'll sit there for a week and standby. So yeah, wow. and there's so many factors, obviously. Well, that's it. Or, yeah, yeah. All right. Uh, over Twitter, George uh, reminded us, and um, no, it, it's something we've mentioned before. An app called Sync S Y N K from Decimus.net. 
One of the interesting things is that it now has what they call live syncing with local volumes. So this is something that we've 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 uh, we've had people asking about before and we have not had a solution. We all uh, have have been aware of the, the, the app called Dropbox, which does live syncing. But of course, it does it up to the cloud uh, in addition to syncing to you know your other Macs if you choose. Decimus's sync does not require the use of the cloud. Uh, as long as you have the device connected, whatever you do, uh, once you set up this live sync, it's a little thing that sits in your menu bar. So it's always running and it, it syncs. It does exactly what you think. You copy something to a folder and bam, if that folder is set to live sync with, you know, another device, boom, it's good to go. So, uh, so definitely worth checking out, uh, from decimus.net. We'll again, have a, have a link in the show notes, Bob, and that is Dr. Bob. Dr. Mac, Dr. Bob Levitas really wrote wrote in and said, uh, forklift isn't a bad way to create sim links, but the easiest way I've found for creating a simplink sim link is with a contextual menu plugin called symbolic linker. Once you've installed this, you just right click on any file and there's an option in the services menu, make a symbolic link. And, and this is actually pretty cool, John. It, in Snow Leopard, this is a services app. So you put it either in your library services folder or your home library services folder, depending on whether you want it system-wide or just for a specific user. And then you just launch this app and, and, and then it's there. It's, it's a service on the system, you know, in the, in the contextual menu and all that. But, uh, but installing this made me realize that the library services or home library services folders are yet one more place to look for any startup apps or anything that might, uh, that might be happening at startup. So, so put that on your, on your list of things to check. So Bob's tip was, or Bob's cool stuff found was, uh, was, was useful for two reasons. One, one last one, John, you think we got time for one last cool stuff found here? I, yeah, the next one in line, I, uh, I, I kind of dig. I, I do. I like it. Okay, cool. So, uh, Neil writes, you fine gentlemen were recently discussing editing photos from within Aperture and noted several alternatives to the pricey Adobe Photoshop application. <laughs> Gimp, uh, but neglected to mention a very, fairly powerful, completely free open source solution called Gimp. GIMP, which stands for Graphic Image Manipulation Program, started life as a Unix application under X Windows, actually. Uh, but it has been ported to the Mac and, of course, even Windows. And and he's right. There is a uh, th- there's there's now a version of GIMP that doesn't require you to install all the extra stuff that you used to have to install to uh, to make it work. It's all bundled together. So it's good stuff. Though I do believe. Yeah, one one. My, uh, I do believe it's GNU. Image manipulation program. Oh, is that right? I had that in my head, and I just looked it up. And uh, but hey, yeah, it's the GIMP, and no, not not the GIMP, right? Or the and, GIMP, uh, and and I think it's running. Uh, I think it, it still runs under X11, but but I, I believe it, yeah, but that that's included in X11 being a windowing system that, as far as I know, is still supported under Mac OS 10. Yes, yes, that's right. But hey, it's it's uh, it's worth the money. <laughs> Maybe more. <laughs> Maybe even twice the price. Huh. Feedback. So welcome back. Thanks. Oh, yes. Feedback at MacGeekGab.com is the address to which you can send your comments, questions, audio files, screenshots, whatever it takes. 
You know, Dave, I'm amazed that, you know, after a week and my getting a year older, that you remembered that you write us at feedback at MacGeekGap.com. Not only did well, I remember well done. It, but I said feedback at MacGeekGap.com. That's right. Outstanding. That's right. Happy birthday again, by the way. This is, uh, this, didn't you have one of those last year? <laughs> they, they keep coming up. Yeah, it was, uh, it was Saturday. <laughs> now, it was Saturday. Went to a nice uh, little photo walk in Manhattan. Didn't cool. rain on us. Uh, yeah, it was a good good day. It rained like the Dickens here on Saturday. I'm not sure what the Dickens is like, but like hotcakes, it is a universal reference for... Uh, it rained like hotcakes. Ooh, can I'd be imagine? into raining hotcakes. Yeah, that'd, that'd be good, actually. Uh, 206-666-GEEK, which is... Four, three, three, five. It's the number you can call if you don't want to have to email us. Uh, that will get us a voicemail that, or you, that will allow you to leave us a voicemail that uh, that we will that we will hear and uh, and potentially even play on the show as you've heard. MacGeekGab.com will bring you to where you can see the show notes and also sign up for our premium version, which gets you two additional episodes per month. Also, access to the entire archive, uh, a special email address to which you can send in your questions, and most of all, that warm, fuzzy feeling you get from supporting your two favorite geeks. Uh, I think it's worth it. I do, too. Yeah. <laughs> uh, all right. We, uh, Twitter. Twitter. Go ahead. You're Dave Hamilton. I'm yeah. John F. Braun. Pilot Pete is Pilot Pete. Mac Geekab is Mac Geekab. Mac Observer is Mac Observer. It, it couldn't be any easier. Well, it, it probably could, but it's pretty darn easy. Michael Johnston hosts the We Have Communicators, formerly iPhone Alley podcast. He also converts this show to AAC for your interactive pleasure. Cashfly.com provides all the bandwidth. The podcast marketplace includes those A5 desktop speakers from Audio Engine, Yojimbo from Barebones Software, Text Expander and Text Expander Touch from Smile and Notebook for the Mac and for the iPad from Circus Ponies. All through Backbeat Media. John, anything to add before we move on? No, this was a, was a long one. Not the longest one, despite no. peeping here. But, uh, <laughs> I resemble that. <laughs> yes, you do. 